scripture today comes from Psalm chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it reads, Why are the nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains. And they cry and free ourselves from slavery to God. But the one who rules in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then in anger, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his fierce fury. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decrees. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become, have begotten you. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Now then, you kings, act wisely. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Submit to God's royal one, or he will become angry, and you will be destroyed in the midst of all your activities, for his anger flares up in an instant. But what joy for all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin this morning? Father, we ask that you would help us now to understand your word. Help me as I preach it, Lord, to say your words, your thoughts, not my own. We ask for clarity of communication on both ends, for me as the speaker and everyone here as the listeners. Help us to do our diligence to focus our attention on you right now and not the things of this world. So we ask for a distraction-free time now, Lord, that we would be completely focused upon your glory and who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. By the time they reached Paris, they were exhausted, hungry, and terribly thirsty. But nothing was going to prevent them from accomplishing their mission. And so demanding an audience with the king of France, Stephen of Cloyes told of how he had received a vision from God, telling him to retake the Holy Land and remove the Muslim invaders who fiercely occupied it. And this was no small task. For the Pope had already sent armies who had tried and failed several times to retake the Holy Land. But nevertheless, Stephen and his followers had zeal and passion as they were convinced that they would succeed where the others had failed. And maybe they would, because after all, for Stephen's crusade, this was quite different than all the rest. There's nothing like it. For instance, this was not a mission that was commissioned by the Vatican at all. In fact, they were largely against it. This was a grassroots movement. And get this, the soldiers didn't even have weapons. I kid you not, they didn't even have weapons. Instead, they carried crosses, banners, and an optimistic can-do attitude that they could convert the Muslims with their powerful persuasion and God's divine help. That was their strategy. And after all, why wouldn't that work? Stephen had a a vision from God. God showed up and spoke to him and told him he would help him and give him victory. And so this unusual crusade set out, led by their glorious leader, Stephen of Cloyes, who, by the way, did I mention something else that was quite strange, was only 12 years old. I'm not making this up. He was only 12 years old. 
And so this was quite unusual. He, in fact, was a child leader, and get this, he was leading other thousands of children on this crusade to retake the Holy Land. So how had this 12-year-old boy convinced thousands of other children to join his cause? Well, through three ways. Powerful preaching, powerful songs that motivated his listeners to join his cause, and the claim of spectacular miracles to accompany his divine mission he was given. Sound familiar to anything we hear today? God told me was his message, and because people believed it, he was effective at luring thousands of children from their families to carry out this divine mission from God. And so Stephen and his army of 30,000 children set out unarmed but determined to try to overthrow Jerusalem, squeaky voices and all. And they did not accomplish their mission. <laughs> Shocking, right? Not only did they never even reach the Holy Land at all, but their army fell apart on the way there as they hit Italy when slavers overtook the boys and sold them into slavery. Pretty sad moment in human history. <laughs> Resulting not only in one of the greatest military failures but in one of the greatest basic human common sense failures in all of human history. I don't know, maybe there was something in the water back then, but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that an army of zealous, weaponless boys and children, they're not going to be able to take out a trained adult army. You should have been able to figure this out. That's like a peewee football team thinking they can beat any NFL team besides the Vikings. It's just not going to happen. And as ridiculous as all of this was, in Psalm chapter 2, we find a crusade infinitely more foolish than any children's crusade. We find humanity's crusade, and every single one of us is a part of it. And the goal of this crusade is to overthrow the all-powerful sovereign Lord of the universe. Look at verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Psalm chapter 2 and follow along with me here. In verse 1, what does it say? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Now our passage, as we just said, is Psalm chapter 2 this morning. And scholars have shown that this is the chapter that follows Psalm chapter 1. Pretty in-depth stuff. I think I'm right there. That's how I can tell who's awake today. And both of these psalms lay out two possible paths that we can follow. One path that rages against God and follows the rebellious crusade against him, seeking to overthrow his rule and reign, and the other that submits to his rule, his law, and his ways. And so in light of today being July 4th, our morning's message has been titled, A Declaration of Dependence, because as we'll see, that's what our passage is calling us to do today. Not to declare our independence, but to declare our dependence. And so turning to our passage this morning, there's our two points. Because Jesus is Lord and King, we must not declare our independence. And secondly, we must declare our dependence. Now there's a few questions we need to ask here and answer, hopefully, as we jump into this to understand this. Who is this King? Who are we talking about here? If he's the king of all the universe, and we're supposed to bow the knee to him, who is he? Well, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of King David, 
who lived and died and who rose again victoriously from the grave. He is both the Son of Man, but he is also the virgin-born Son of the living God. As Hebrews tells us, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The book of Revelation describes this king as the rider on the white horse, who will one day very, very soon strike down all the nations who rage against him on the day of God's wrath, the terrible day of God's wrath. And he will then, after destroying all of his enemies and putting them under his feet and making them his footstool, he will do what? He will rule and reign from on high, for he is the only one who has the right, the power, and the authority to do so. And it is this king that humanity so desperately strives to overthrow. And why? That's the next question we've got to answer. If that's who the king is, why don't we want him as our king? Because we want autonomy. We want absolute freedom. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I'm in charge of my life. I'm the boss around here. That's our, that's our cry. It's our cry that we have made as we declare our independence against him. Look at verses 2 and 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And the picture here the psalmist is giving us is of a wild animal that desperately wants to break free from its entrapment, from captivity. Why? So it can run wild as it see fits. And these nations, so too, are behaving in the same way. And these nations who are usually in a constant state of war with each other and who are constantly trying to subjugate each other put their differences aside because they've got a common enemy. And that's the Lord of hosts. And what do they say? Their chant is this. We will not have this man reign over us. Anyone but him. That's what the Jews cried, right? That's what they cried out as they endeavored to crucify our Lord. They would not have him as their king. They would not have the one true king, the one rightful king, the only king, the true and only God of this universe rule and reign over them. See, though God said, you shall have no other gods before me, the nations of man, which includes all of us, have cried out in our hearts, we shall have no God before us. For we too, in fact, will be God. We will rule and reign. And this is a tale that is truly as old as time, right? This goes back to Satan. Satan thought what? I could do this better than God. I should be in charge. Pride came up in his heart, and he desired to be God. Then that rebellion, which began with Satan, continued on into humanity, as we see in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan appeared as a serpent who whispered in Adam and Eve's ear, and he whispered to them, you know, you too could be gods. God doesn't want you to be like him. For if you chose to eat from the tree, you would be like him. And we believe that lie. And ever since then, humanity has been raging against God. And what have been the results of all of this raging against him? The death of billions, right? Surprisingly, it turns out that as creatures demand freedom from their creator, that's a lot like cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. Pretty high up, and you're going to fall, and it's going to hurt when you hit the ground. 
And yet, because the human heart is desperately wicked, we nevertheless march forward in our crusade against the God of the universe in our futile attempt to overthrow him. But think about that for a minute. Is that something we could possibly hope to accomplish? This is a God, let me remind you, who made the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon, and all of creation. How? The power of his voice. He spoke, and it was there. And if that wasn't awesome enough, in the very first chapter of the Bible, after it tells us of how he made all these things, you know what it says next? Oh yeah, he also made all the stars. It's almost like a footnote or like this afterthought comment, like, oh, I forgot to tell you, by the way, he made all the stars. And how many stars are there? Are there thousands of stars? No. Are there millions of stars? No. There's trillions of stars. Right? And this is just mentioned as like an offhanded comment. Oh, yeah, by the way, he lit the fires of a trillion burning suns with the power of his voice. Almost forgot to tell you, that's how powerful this God is. It's a pretty powerful God, is it not? And what does humanity do in the face of such an awesome and powerful God? We think that we can overthrow him. And so together, we gather as little children, without our weapons that are, could possibly overtake him, and seek to do just that. Right? We, but the sad reality is, is we are completely weaponless next to a God whose voice commands the stars. Like, what weapons do we have that could compete with that? Nothing. We're weaponless. Do you know that many Satanists don't believe in a literal devil? Anybody here know that already? A lot of them don't even believe in Satan at all. all right? Some do, a lot of them do, and they worship him because they think he's awesome. It's weird. But a lot of them don't. They don't even believe he exists. But why are they then Satanists? Because Satanism is primarily the worship of absolute autonomy and individual freedom. That's what it's about. And does that sound at all kind of where our culture is in the West today, right? I decide who I am. I decide if I'm male or female. I decide who I will love. All these things, like forget God. I don't need that. I'm in charge, right? That's Satanism. And what is at the core of Satanism is self-worship, not divine God-worship. The 19th century pastor George MacDonald, I like how he put this. He said, there is one conviction in hell, and it is this. I am, I am my own. That's it. I am my own. That's the conviction of hell. See, the Bible tells us that the rebellion that's within our hearts is the default state of our human hearts. That's how we all start. The natural mind isn't just indifferent towards God. It's, kind of just, it's not just like, oh, you know what? You do your thing, I'll do my thing. No, it's hostile to him. The word is enmity. We are at enmity with him. We hate him. We don't just disbelieve in God, right? We hate him. Deep down in our hearts, we actually hate him. Now, it is true that most people in our culture, if you do polls and you look at the polls, they'll say, yeah, I believe in God. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Of course, it makes sense. You know, you look around and it doesn't just happen. Yeah, I believe in God. However, if you press them on that and ask them, okay, well, you believe in God. What about, what, what God are you talking about? If you start talking about the God of the Bible, what do they do? They shrink back, right? They have no problem believing in a God of love, but a God who says it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes what? The judgment, you start throwing that out on Facebook, asking people, being like, you know, posting up things like that, they're going to be like, that, that's hateful. No, that, that's not the God. I, that's not my God, right? You ever heard that before? My God wouldn't do that. Well, your God doesn't exist, or your God is yourself, really, is what that's about. 
The reality is our culture hates the God of the Bible. They will gladly believe in a God of love, but not a God of wrath. And if you tell them that they must bow the knee to the God of the Bible, a God who says in Ecclesiastes that he will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, both good and evil, what will they do? Brush you off. Roll their eyes at you. Say, come on. That's, that, that God doesn't exist. That's, that's old stuff. That's not how things are. We, we know that's not true. Because the truth is, they've rejected the true God, and they've put in place a God made in their own image. For a God who speaks in a thundering voice from Mount Sinai and says, thou shalt, is just too restrictive for them. It imposes upon their autonomy, upon their individual choice. That's way too threatening. We can't have that. No. And so they rage against that God, the true God. And the Bible tells us it's not just the evil rulers of the world who respond this way to God. It's all of us. Every single one of us. Is, this is the default state of the human heart. Your heart. My heart. Even little baby Nora's heart. That is the default state of all of our hearts. We come into the world that way. Jeremiah 17.9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Look at verse 2 again with me. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? It doesn't say, why do the nation's evil leaders rage and plot in vain and pull the people into their schemes, does it? Why did it? It's us. This isn't a rebellion, right? against the king of glory that is forcibly led by brutal and abusive tyrants who have enslaved all of us to do their will. No, this is a grassroots rebellion that demands complete and total liberation from God. The Bible's full of examples of this. There's a lot of really good illustrations that show just how hostile the human heart is towards God. And one of the big ones, I think, is the Tower of Babel. And what did the people say at the Tower of Babel? They said this, Come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. And why? So that we may make a name for ourselves. Right? That's the cry of the human heart. Not a name for God, a name for ourselves. That's our heart's cry. Do you remember with Israel who their king was before King Saul? Does anybody remember who that was, what his name was? It was God. <laughs> kind of a trick question. It was. God was their king. And what did they say? They said, we want a king. Give us a king, Samuel. We want one. All the other nations around us have a king. We want to be like them. We're tired of this having God as our king thing. Give us a king from amongst us, like all of them have. And what does God say to Samuel when Samuel goes to God with their request, knowing they shouldn't have asked for it? He says this, Obey the voice of the people. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's what it was about. And what a perfect picture of the human heart. What do I mean by that? I mean this. The human heart both longs to overthrow the king while simultaneously still needing the king. Right? What did Israel do? Did they go to Samuel and say, we don't want a king. You know, no king, no king, la, 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 the lion king thing, right? Did they do that? No. They're like, we don't want this king, God. We want this king, right? See, if you reject God sitting on the throne of your life, that throne room can't remain empty. Someone's got to sit on it. 
And within each of our hearts, there is a little throne room that requires a king to sit upon it. And if you don't believe me, then let me ask you, why do all of our greatest stories tell of a king who will one day make everything right? From Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, to King Arthur, Arthur, to Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, to even the great 17th century classic, Disney's The Lion King, all of these stories, not from the 17th century, that was a joke, all of these stories tell of the same story, right? Which is what? Which is that when the true king returns, the king we need and desire returns, everything's going to be all right. When the king returns, winter will be gone, summer will arrive, the white witch will be vanquished. And the reason we keep telling ourselves this same story over and over in different ways, here's my theory, it's because this story was written on our hearts. It's written on my heart, on your heart. And deep down, we know it's true, right? It's ingrained within us. And now look here, if I'm wrong and this longing isn't what I think it is, then let me ask you, why is it there? Right? Like, if you look at the history of human kings and queens, like, is that a positive picture for humanity? No. It's abysmally terrible. Right? Think of King David. King David, who actually wrote this psalm, is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Okay? So King David is like the protege best humanity has to offer for human kings. Right? That, that's the best we can do. In a lot of ways, he was good. But at the same time, he was terrible in a lot of ways. He committed adultery, and then he murdered her wife, her husband, to try to cover the whole thing up. Right? Like, that's bad stuff. I like how Tim Keller points out about this. He points out here that in regards to this manner of how the human history of kings and monarchs is so bad, he points out that we've pretty much replaced all of them. Right? We're like, that's so bad. We're done with that. We're doing, we're doing democracy. And even in England where they don't, like they have a king and queen, they're like, yeah, you can be king, you can be queen, but you don't have any, you don't get to say anything. Right? You just get to sit there and hold the scepter and pretend like you're in charge. Because they're like, no, this is terrible. We don't want this. It's bad. But even with that being the case, does this mean that we have finally cured ourselves for the need of a king? Are we beyond that? Have we evolved beyond the point of needing a king? We don't look to monarchs today for our hope and trust, but do we look to other things? How about celebrities, politicians, sports players, or, this one might sting, even our favorite Christian author? Do they not fit the bill for king worship? Of course they do. And even in England, where they only have a symbolic monarchy, the people there still go absolutely bananas over that stuff. Like, even when like, the grandchildren have babies, they're like, oh my God, look, look, what's going on? They're running all frantic, going nuts about it. What about material things like money, a successful career, things like family, nice vacations, nice houses, cars, or a church that is healthy and successful? I know for certain there's at least one person here who struggles with that last one. Don't these things often sit upon the throne of our heart? Do we ever find ourselves looking to those things to give our lives meaning, joy, and happiness? We do. And yet the truth is, all of these things completely pale in comparison to the one true king that our hearts desperately long for. The king our heart needs, and yet still foolishly crusades against. 
And so let me ask you this morning, is there an area in your life where you have refused to bow the knee and submit to the authority of King Jesus? What areas in your life have you built your own little tower of Babel and said, okay, God, this part here is mine. You can have this over here. Stay out of this tower. This one's for me. I've built this for my glory, for my name. Because whatever that thing is, and hear me when I say this, whatever this tower you've built over here is, that's your true king. That's the truth, right? Because you're telling the God of the universe, the king of the universe, that he can be king in all of the ways that are underneath your true king over here, which is whatever thing you're living for in your life. And so you're telling this God, this king, that he needs to get in submission to that, which means that's your true king. And when we do this, when we crusade against his throne and his authority and his kingship, we find out this isn't going to go very well for us, for it is a very foolish and stupid thing to do. What does Psalm 2 say that God's response is to this foolish crusade of ours against his throne? Is he up there in heaven, and is he just like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do about this? This is a, this is a huge problem, right? Is he, is he frantically in stress about this whole situation? No. What, what does the text say? It makes him laugh. He's laughing about it. Like, what a, what a joke. <laughs> like, they have no chance. There's, there's zero threat here to my rule and reign. What are you doing? Right? The image the psalmist gives us is of a peaceful and calm heaven where God is sitting restfully on his throne, undisturbed by all the noise and chaos going down on earth. He isn't worried at all for a second as these silly little children army that are rebelling against him in vain, trying to overthrow him with their crusade. And the point is, God, God's sovereign rule over the nations is so guaranteed that he can sit in heaven and laugh at our spectacularly stupid efforts to overthrow him. It doesn't faze him at all. Because all of our striving against him is nothing but a colossal waste of energy and time. It's not going to be successful. Look at what verses 4 and 5 say. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Okay, that's, that derision, that's like scoffing. Right? And that's ridicule. Right? And as we noted before, Psalm 2 comes after Psalm 1, which, what does it say in Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon it he meditates both day and night. Right? That verse speaks of scoffers. And so do you see the two contrasts here? In Psalm 1, the scoffers scoff at God's law as they completely disregard it. They live how they want. They say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. We're not living God's way. And so they laugh at God's law, and, and, which is really laughing at God. And then in Psalm 2, what happens is God looks at these scoffers, and he just laughs at them. He's like, okay, you're going to laugh at me? I'll laugh at you. This is ridiculous what you're doing. And eventually, as we see in Psalm chapter 2, God's laughing scoffs give way to his wrath and fury as verse 5 describes, which says, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And so the point is, church, one day very soon, the laughing Lord of heaven will stop laughing as he returns to judge the nations with his powerful voice which is described in Revelation 19 as a two-edged sword. 
And in that passage, we read all about what this dreadful day will be like. For on that day, the Lord will judge the nations and do what Psalm 2 says, where it says break, he will break them with a rod of iron. He will dash them in pieces like a, pot, like a potter's vessel, as verse 9 says, with a voice that makes the loudest, thunderous sound we can hear sound like a whisper in the night. And this truth has two practical applications. One, if you know the king, why do you stress and worry? Like, think about this. If Jesus is our king, then whatever worries Jesus should worry us. And if Jesus is our king, whatever doesn't worry Jesus shouldn't worry us. Does that make sense? That's true. Which means then for us, church, that if elections, corrupt politicians, and viruses don't phase our king who is in charge of everything, why should they stress us out? And so to the degree that we trust Christ as our Lord and king, is the degree by which we too will laugh at all the nations who plot in vain against him. We're going to look at the things going on in this world, and they will grow strangely dim, right, in the light of his glory and grace. And the second thing that this has application for is if you don't know the king, you absolutely should worry. Right? Psalm 2 makes that abundantly clear. If you don't know Jesus as your king, you should be in complete panic right now. The raging of the nations doesn't worry God one bit, for as verse 6 says, God has set his king on Zion. What's Zion? Zion is the fortified Canaanite city that David conquered that became Jerusalem, All right, which is the city where scriptures tell us the Messiah, Jesus Christ, will reign upon the throne of David with an iron scepter as he rules over all the nations. See, one day very soon, Jesus will do precisely what verse 8 says, and he will ask his father to make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth his possession. And when that happens, Christ will return. Not, though, as a suffering servant who came to die for sinners, but as a conquering king who will slay sinners, who will break his enemies with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. What's all this stuff about a potter's vessel? What's, what's that about? Well, it's about this. In the ancient times, when kings would go into battle, they would often hold up a clay pot, and they would set it up there, and they would smash the thing with their rod in order to symbolize the absolute and total devastation that they were going to bring upon their enemies. And the psalmist is saying that is a picture for us of what Christ the King will do when he returns as he slays and destroys his enemies. And the point is simple. Those who will not bend the knee to his sovereign rule and reign will be broken. You can bend or be broken. That's it. And just like a potter's vessel, like you can't, when that thing's shattered like that, you can't restore that thing. It's done. All right? And so too will the judgment of Christ upon sinners be irreversible when the all-powerful Son of God lays waste to them in judgment. Look at what verse 7 says. It says that the sovereign Lord decrees this. This is the sovereign Lord's decree. That means we don't get to vote on this. It might shock us as Americans, but we don't get to vote about this thing, right? It's a decree. It's going to happen regardless of whether or not it's politically correct, regardless of whether or not the fact-checkers give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. This is going to happen. 
And so because the Lord is king, we must take his warning seriously and not continue to declare our independence from him. And instead, what must we do? Bow the knee to King Jesus and declare our absolute and total dependence on him. Which leads us to our second point. Because Jesus is Lord and King, we must not declare our independence, but secondly, we must declare our dependence. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. How do we rejoice? With trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Though the day is certainly coming when King Jesus will return and judge his enemies with a rod of iron and smash them like clay pots, thankfully, by the grace of God, today is yet not that day. See, right now, the king is still inviting us to lay down our pathetic arms that we have, our pathetic weapons that we use to crusade against him to give up our foolish children's crusade against him, and to submit to his authority. How? By embracing his mercy. For the truth is, every single one of us has taken part in this crusade against him. And yet still, remarkably, what does he do? He offers peace. He's offering amnesty. How? Serve the Lord with fear, right? And rejoice with trembling. Then what does it say in verse 12? Kiss the Son. Right? You see that? Kiss the Son. And verse 11, what does it say? We just read it. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. For as the end of verse 12 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, what does that mean to kiss the Son? What is that talking about? I can tell you this. It's not just like this, okay, I'll do it. I'll give him a kiss. Like a Judas, that's just a Judas kiss, right? That's not sincere. It's not, it's got to be a sincere kiss. That's what it's talking about, Okay. It's got to be the sincere kiss of submission and reconciliation to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so to kiss the Son is to do exactly as Acts 16.11 says, which is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved. It's that simple. And this is the idea of trusting him. It's the idea of believing upon him. Or as verse 12 says of Psalm chapter 2, to what? To take refuge in him. Think of a king who is about to attack a fortified city with his massive army. But before the attack, he comes and he offers peace to all those who will lay down their arms and surrender before the onslaught begins. And so that's the question for us this morning. Have you taken refuge in him? Have you bowed the knee to King Jesus? Or are you relying on your moral living? Are you relying on your religious activity? Going to church, saying a prayer, right? Those sorts of things. And here's the thing. If you're relying on any of those things, you know what that really is? It's a manipulative way to avoid having to bow the knee to King Jesus. It's true. That's exactly what that is. For trying to kiss the sun through moral living and religious activity is actually refusing to bow the knee because it's saying, okay, God, I'll give you the stuff you want in this part of my life if it means I can still have this part over here. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll, I'll say a sinner's prayer. I can do that. I can walk an aisle. 
Don't ask me to actually bow the knee, to tear down these towers of Babel that I have erected in my life, that I, that I have based my true identity on, that, I, that are actually my true king. Don't ask me to give those up. To truly kiss the son is to tear down all of our towers of Babel that we've built and bow the knee before him as king, recognizing that the shelter he offers is given entirely by mercy and entirely by grace, right? Which means we can't work for it. We can't strike a bargain and say, you, all right, I'll give you this if I can keep this. No, it's all or nothing. You bow the knee or you don't. How can we know, then, if we have taken refuge in the Son? Well, I think there's five ways here that we can know if Jesus is our King. First, let me go through, here's what they are. We will obey Him, we will trust Him, we will properly approach Him, we will have confidence in Him, and last, we will serve Him. First, if Jesus is our King, this is pretty common sense, right? We, have, we will obey Him, right? You, you don't... You don't just look to a king. Like a king's not your counselor, all right? He's not just your consultant. We don't go to him and say, my will be done, not thy will be done. It's the opposite. There's no way around this. Well, obedience, listen, don't miss this point. Well, obedience doesn't save us, right? That's a work. It doesn't. If Jesus has saved us, consequently, we will obey him because he is our true king. And so we must and we will obey him. Secondly, if Jesus is our king, we trust him. When we step down from the throne of our life, we look to Jesus to rule and reign in our place, even when he does things that we don't particularly care for or understand, right? When something really bad happens in our life, we don't say, all right, God, I gave you control. I don't know what you're doing off the throne. I'm back on this thing because I don't like the direction you're sending me here. This, this is uncomfortable. This hurts. This is painful. How could you do this to me? The point here is, if Jesus is your king, then you trust him as Lord and king, which means you trust that he knows what he's doing. And so you don't worry about it. He's in charge. Which means that no matter what God sovereignly brings as king into our lives, we will say back to him, as Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Third, if Jesus is our king, we will properly approach him. Verse 11 says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice. How do we rejoice? With trembling. Those are kind of two interesting words that are put together, right? We rejoice in God, but we tremble before God. How do those two things fit? Well, when we approach the king of the universe, we do not approach him like he's just anybody, right? We approach him, how? With a holy reverence and fear and respect. Hebrews 12 says this, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably, which implies, right, that there's an unacceptable way to worship him. So it says, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably. How? with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is not dreadful fear, church, but a joyous fear that both loves and respects him, right? And so we can approach him with rejoicing and trembling. That's not a problem for us. Fourth, if Jesus is our king, we will have kingly confidence in him. Think about this with me. If we, we've been talking about prayer last week, and we'll, Lord willing, we'll continue that next week. But if we rarely pray to him, 
Or when we pray to him, it's just kind of this ritualistic thing, you know, where we just, you know, we say our prayers, check the box kind of a thing, right? And we don't actually expect him to answer our prayers. Then we're not really treating him as king, then are we? Not really. If we believe that Jesus is the all-powerful king of the universe, don't you think that might affect our prayer life in some ways? Absolutely it will. For if Jesus is our king, we will pray to him in faith with confidence, not with doubt or uncertainty, wondering if he's truly good and really has our best interests at heart. We won't approach it that way. We'll trust him. Fifth, if Jesus is our king, we will serve him. Matthew 28, 19 through 20 says this. This is Jesus. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. When the king saves rebels, he commissions them as ambassadors of his kingdom to go into the enemy-occupied territory and offer peace to all of the rebels there if they would simply bow the knee and swear allegiance to him. And when they do, they too can be brought into his kingdom. And this is a mission that we've been given, and it's a mission that we delight in because we do not serve a tyrannical king, do we? Right? Like if you go to the world and you say, hey, you know what, you've got to bow the knee to Jesus or he's going to wipe you out. They're going to be like, that sounds like a bad guy. <laughs> right? But that's, we don't serve a bad guy, do we? We serve a good God. Right? Not a tyrannical king who seeks to imprison us in slavery and in misery, but a gracious and loving king who seeks our good and who seeks to bless us. A king of love who stepped down from his throne in order to serve his enemies as they even crusaded against him to the point of his death. A king of love who willingly laid down his life for us in order, why? To turn our crusading hearts into peaceful hearts that would no longer war with God. A king of love who not only showers us with all of his riches, but what does he do? What does this, what does this ruling king do? He invites us to rule and reign along with him. Does that sound like a tyrannical king to you? Not at all. And so this morning, that's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is Jesus our king? Or is he our counselor? Those are very, very different things. One will lead to an eternal path of destruction and misery, and the other will lead to joyous bliss for all of eternity. So I ask you, is Jesus your king? If not, heed the words of the psalmist. Kiss the son, lest you perish in his way. But blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Father, we thank you for the refuge you offer us through the shed blood of Jesus. Lord, we ask if there's anyone here who has deluded themselves into thinking that they have actually thrown down their weapons of war against you by compromising with religious obedience here and there or moralistic living here and there. We pray for that person especially, Lord, that they would come to see that you are not a counselor, you are a king who demands and deserves our absolute allegiance and obedience. And so, Lord, help us by your grace and the power of your Spirit to tear down these towers of Babel that we've erected in our lives, that we live for, that we foolishly think will give our lives meaning, purpose, and happiness, for they cannot.
for only you can fill that void in our heart, for only you can sit upon the throne of our heart. And we praise you for that when we do, we actually find true meaning, joy, and happiness. So Father, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, that today they would bow the knee by your grace, through faith, in Christ, as they trust in the one who offers the shelter from the storm. Christ is both the shelter and the storm. And so we pray that we would find that shelter in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand with us as we sing our closing song today, All Creatures of Our God and King.